Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, why Germany's leading philosopher thinks his country's policies are undermining the European Union. We hear from two photographers about the challenges of covering the unrest in Ukraine. And Thailand has had an election, but the future of its government is no clearer. But we begin in Germany, where Jürgen Habermas, the country's most prominent philosopher and one of its leading public intellectuals, this week warned that what he called Angela Merkel's mean-spirited response to the crisis in the Eurozone was undermining the European project from within. At 84, Habermas has long been one of Germany's most passionate advocates of European integration, and he's viewed by many on the centre-left as a moral giant. Our Germany correspondent, Derek Scali, joins me from Berlin. Derek, what exactly does Jürgen Habermas think is wrong with Angela Merkel's response? Well, pretty much everything. In simple terms, Professor Habermas has said that um, Germany had an incorrect diagnosis of the cause of the Eurozone crisis. It had uh, dished out the wrong prescription, and uh, this was something that could damage or even kill off the European project. He was speaking to the Social Democrats, who just entered a grand coalition with Angela Merkel, and this was very uncomfortable listening for them, because he said to them, from the opposition benches and now in government, you are basically carrying on a politics that he says undermining the very European integration he's been pushing. Uh, he, he basically had three things to say. He said that it was completely wrong for Germany to label uh, the recent euro turbulence as a sovereign debt crisis. This is often how it's been framed in Germany. He pointed out that in many countries, such as in Ireland, um, the problem was a private debt issue that was nationalized. Uh, the actual budgetary situation in many countries wasn't a problem. So if you call it a sovereign debt crisis, you then go on and say you want uh, states to slim down, to have a radical fiscal diet. But he says this had carried, this was investor friendly politics and it had caused huge upset and uh, unrest in countries. And then he basically said, uh, this, if this continued, uh, Germany was basically uh, throwing a roadblock towards further European integration and that it was setting itself up as a hegemonic position that would just create a terrible upset and terrible resistance among its neighbours, and the whole European project would grind to a halt. And now, he also complained about the way in which these decisions were being made. He said that Angela Merkel had turned her back on the community method, and that basically she was uh, instead railroading all these things through with the other heads of government in the European Union. Indeed, yes. There's always been two ways of doing this, the community method, which countries like Ireland think is, is more conducive to their interests. But he said that this had been abandoned uh, in the Euro crisis, and he, he used the word Selbstermächtigung, the self-empowerment uh, of the European councils where EU leaders meet. Now, that's a strong term in German because Ermächtigung uh, summons up all sorts of notions of, of um, Adolf Hitler and other politicians in the past throwing the rule book out the window in times of crisis and making a grab on power. So, very strong rhetoric and he's saying that uh, the way the European Union uh, worked in the past was abandoned and this has huge consequences for the future unless uh, Germany uh, goes back to working with its partners, working with the European Commission and uh, setting itself up as a more honest broker for the entire European Union rather than its own national interests in the future. Uh, Jürgen Habermas is a person of huge stature in Germany and beyond and he's obviously particularly well regarded within the Social Democrats but do you think uh, that anybody in the government is going to take much notice of what he's saying? 
It's probably unlikely. I mean, the curious thing about uh, the German debate in the last few years is that um, the Social Democrats were um, pretty much behind Angela Merkel all the way. Uh, this is the Social Democrats uh, t- supposedly centre-left. Now, there is a left wing in the SPD who were very critical of of this, and they were nodding their heads when uh, he c- criticised sort of a technocratic intergovernmental approach that, quote, treated national governments and citizens like underage children. So on the left of the SPD, there's definitely some satisfaction that their uh, that their arguments are now being heard or being repeated by Habermas. But um, the SPD carried Merkel's politics in opposition, and now in government, it's very unlikely that they're going to uh, going to uh, call any of that into question. Of course, much of the groundwork has been prepared with the fiscal treaty, with European fiscal reforms. Um, so the SPD, as uh, Professor Habermas said, are to his regret probably just going to continue this approach. But um, he says that this is a hegemonic role that Germany cannot afford uh, that has led to disaster in the past and is creating an explosive situation in the present. Now, one reason that Germany, German policymakers feel comfortable in prescribing austerity to their European neighbours is that they went through a lot of it themselves. Ten years ago uh, or more, uh, they went through these uh, very, very radical labour market reforms and welfare reforms under the Social Democrat Prime Minister Gerhard Schröder. And this, they believe, has been the basis of their current prosperity. But a new survey cast doubt on all of that. Exactly. One of the the common uh, refrains you hear in Germany is that Germany did its homework a decade ago and other countries need to do the same. And that Germany's reforms are are a template that can be applied in other countries. And this new survey basically throws this out the window. It says, yes, Germany became a more competitive place. Units, labour costs, uh, dropped, but they said this happened long before Gerhard Schröder rolled out his reforms for the labour market and for the economy in 2003. They said this was happening towards the end of the 1990s as a response to German unification. Uh, so they're basically saying uh, this was happening long before the reforms came along, so be very cautious about thinking that this can be uh, carbon copied and distributed around the EU. What they say was the key to Germany's um, uh, recovery and its regained competitiveness was was what Germany has, has a very autonomous wage setting practices. It isn't there is until recently there wasn't a, a minimum wage, and that uh, social partners, uh, employers, and unions in regions were able to decide. Uh, for themselves, what were the best wage practices for their region, for their locality, rather than it being dictated from Berlin. And they said this is a very pragmatic approach that enables companies to react and uh, roll back in uh, tight times. But then when when an economy uh, picks up again, that employees can benefit from this. So they said this flexibility and not some sort of central uh, diktat from Berlin was responsible. So again, they're saying uh, the German economic turnaround actually happened long before it became visible and certainly long before Gerhard Schröder rolled out his reforms a decade ago. And is there, uh, are there signs now in Germany that people have had enough of reforms and that they want uh, now to, to let the good times roll and reap some of the benefits of their prosperity? Oh, definitely. I mean, you can see unit labour costs are rising, wages are rising, uh, consumption is rising. Uh, there's a big, there's a big talk now that uh, Germany's domestic demand, which has been the Achilles' heel of the German economy and uh, a source of much complaint among Germany's neighbours, who say Germans just aren't buying anything, they aren't importing anything. That is growing. Uh, that this is improving, and that Germany, the German economy, which was an export-led uh, economy, an export-led recovery in the last years, has now turned into an internal recovery. But um, there is no real sign that this Germany is going to become a, 
a country of of, uh, of big spenders. This is a nervous, aging country. They like to save. They like to put their money into insurance policies. They're very nervous when uh, interest rates drop and inflation rises. So uh, it's 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 never going to be a country of big spenders. But uh, any rise in demand is always good for Germany's European partners. Derek Scali in Berlin. Thank you. The 10-week standoff in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev between anti-government demonstrators and forces loyal to President Viktor Yanukovych shows no sign of ending. The demonstrations and the violent clashes that accompany them have produced some of the most dramatic images of recent months. And I'm joined now by two photojournalists, Ross MacDonald and Paolo Nunes dos Santos, who have just returned from Kiev. Um, Ross, I'm looking at Time magazine and this incredible photo spread and spread of uh, words as well. Uh, that you've put together from Kiev. Can you tell me something about uh, about what your assignment was there and why you went there? Uh, I went there as a freelance photographer, actually, uh, having seen the images that emerged on Tuesday the 21st, Wednesday the 22nd of January, when protesters attacked uh, police lines near the Dynamo Kiev Stadium. And it, uh, it was a a sort of maelstrom of uh, rioting and snow in minus 20 degree conditions. Uh, we saw images of protesters uh, drawing handguns on police. Uh, and most crucially, there'd been the, the death of two and then a third protester in the course of those riots and, and subsequently one further outside the city. And that sparked my interest enough to, to go Myself and Paolo actually travelled from Dublin together and decided that we should leave uh, as early as we could the next morning rather than leave it to the weekend. Um, so I didn't have an assignment until I went there, which is often the case these days with uh, freelance photojournalism. And so in, in terms of operating within an environment like that where it's volatile and violent, how difficult it is, is it to work in, in that kind of atmosphere? Well, Kiev, uniquely for a city of five million people, uh, is enormously focused in its protest area. Obviously, the protesters have set up this Euromaidan or Independence Square in the very heart of Kiev. And over the course of these 10 weeks, they've set up these enormous barricades. Uh, they're really quite uh, workmanlike protesters in that almost everybody on the streets is daily scraping snow and ice off the streets to fill bags, to build the barricades higher, to keep out government forces. Um, so it's actually quite an easy environment to work in. Everything's happening almost within a, a city block radius. And they've sort of begun expanding their sphere of influence around the Euromaidan, uh, taking over government ministries. These clashes occurred about a block away um, where they turned this sort of beautiful avenue near the Dynamo Kiev Stadium into a sort of scene of post-apocalyptic abandon um, that we've seen in the photographs that have emerged. Paolo, the demonstrators themselves, they seem to be a pretty mixed bunch and the opposition generally uh, has been lacking in coherence to some extent. There have been some suggestions that the that right-wing nationalists have been playing a leading role. Did you come across uh, many of these people? Uh, sure. I, I was uh, in Kiev in December, uh, second week of December. Uh, it was a completely different atmosphere in the Maidan. I spent a week there. Um, I started to do the story and I felt I need to go back now, uh, reason myself and uh, Ross went back. And uh, the, the things changed. In the, in the period of two, three weeks, the things changed. And there's definitely a bigger presence of these right-wing uh, groups. Do, according with local people, they actually 
most of them never been heard by the by the people. They are kind of new groups. They they're emerging, and they surely they have a lot of influence in the in the whole process at the moment. Um, I don't believe uh, I've spoken many people uh, involved. Um, Analysts and people involved in, in the sort of politics, and uh, what my understanding of the of the the whole uh, right wing movement in the country uh, is not necessarily the right wing, the traditional right wing that we are used in Europe. Okay, they are nationalists. Um, they they have a common cause uh, to bring down the the regime of uh, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, however, um, is not is not is not exactly the same. Uh, type of right-wing. I can explain it for example. Although they are very highly nationalists, um, myself and Ross, we, we got the chance to be in the funeral of one of the, the guys from, from this group, from the common cause, is the, in English would be the translation to the name of this group, uh, that was killed during clashes with the police uh, early in the week. And uh, we went to this funeral, and uh, then we were told that the guy was was quite impressive. Was very emotive. Uh, a lot of people attended. Uh, was was something that I, I wrote for the newspaper I work in Portugal. I wrote that uh, th that parade, that uh, funeral procession, remind me these images of Northern Ireland uh, of loyalist groups and uh, Republican marches back in the day. Uh, was a lot. Was more flags of the of the nationalist group than the 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 country itself. However, the individual, the, the guy, the member who got killed and the funeral was about, um, he was not even Ukrainian, was, if I'm not mistaken, Belarusian. Yeah, Belarusian. And uh, he joined the group, he became a nationalist. So uh, in other nationalist groups in other countries, in the traditional uh, right-wing movements, uh, you very rarely would see a foreign uh, national taking part in these groups, basically. And in, indeed, in the iconography of funerals, uh, you know, in Northern Ireland and indeed in many other conflicts, uh, these are, are very carefully constructed uh, visual uh, displays. And I'm wondering when you, you speak and looking at your images here, Ross, uh, in the magazine, you talk about this post-apocalyptic uh, notion. And I'm just wondering to what extent are these people, are the demonstrators conscious of the visual impact of what they're doing and conscious of the power of the images that is being spread across the world, that are being spread across the world? Uh, very much so. I think more so you see an enormous spirit of unity and sort of uh, collectivism and uh, maybe even street style among these protesters. You know, there's a lot of uh, post-Soviet army surplus that people are wearing. Uh, almost everyone in the Maidan is walking around in some kind of Second World War sort of uh, army surplus helmets. There's people using gas masks. Um, having said that, you know, the rioting against the police was kind of in a way, symbolic, you know. They didn't never tried to attack the police lines or overrun them. Uh, we witnessed uh, the occupation of the Kiev Convention Center, which was an enormously violent incident, people smashing windows, uh, throwing, uh, you know, grenade sticks um, and attacking the police. And then eventually the protesters, however orchestrated they were, called a halt to that with about 200 riot police uh, trapped inside the building. So I don't think violence is their aim, and I think these type of statements might be their goal for now. And that, you have to assume, is coming directly from their leadership, from the opposition leadership, not to sink to the level of the government, not to be using live rounds, not to mobilize um, lethal force against the police and against the government forces. 
this is a Ukrainian protest movement that wants to show itself to be workaday, to be unified, uh, and to be everything that the government is not, essentially. It does look, though, that as if uh, it's going to be very difficult to end these protests because, as Paolo was saying, the uh, the more radical elements seem to be stronger on the street, whereas the moderate elements appear to be more open to compromise with President Yanukovych. Do you see or did you get any impression as to what it would take to actually end these protests? My sense of the... Uh of the dynamic of the Ukrainian political crisis was that the opposition need uh, clear leadership. That the moment they have three leadership figures, one from a far right group, one who is under the uh, the leadership of the jailed former Prime Minister Timoshenko, and then a former world champion boxer, uh, who seems to have captivated the the public opinion, but doesn't have this the political... Vitaly Klitschko. Vitaly Klitschko, but doesn't yet have the smarts maybe to, to oust the other two and say, I'm taking this movement forward. And I think that's what the people need. They need one voice and they need a, uh, you know, a direct line to overthrow this government. And that's really what the people are crying out for. But as yet, the opposition are sort of amongst themselves saying, oh, we need dialogue. Um, also, the reality of the situation is that Russia has offered this huge aid package to bail out the Ukrainian government, uh, while the people want the country to, you know, graduate towards uh, towards the EU. So, in a sense, they're trapped in the middle and they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place at the moment. I think you get the sense that um, if one of these right-wing groups really, really made a move for the parliament, that might actually kickstart something but at the moment it seems to be stagnating in the last few weeks with talks going on in Europe the Russians saying it's time you know to give this up and come back to dialogue and uh, it's really it's playing into the hands of this Ukrainian government at the moment. Ross MacDonald and Paolo Nunes dos Santos thank you and you can see Ross MacDonald's pictures in uh, Time magazine and on time.com. Thailand went to the polls on Sunday in a snap election called by Prime Minister Yingluk Shinawatra in an attempt to defuse protests by the Conservative opposition. A partial boycott meant, however, that many of the seats were not filled or contested properly. I'm joined now by our Asia correspondent, Clifford Coonan. Where do we stand now, Clifford, with regard to this election? Well, where we are at the moment is that the opposition Democrats say that they will challenge uh, the weekend ballot. Uh, in court, and uh, the election commission is saying that it's going to investigate possible campaigning irregularities um, in in this uh, political conflict, which has been going on for so long now that um, it's hard to know um, what direction things are going to go. But it's it's become a very very drawn out conflict, and um, um, we have to just wait and see, you know, whether we're going to see much deeper conflict or whether it's going to just keep continuing like this. Perhaps you could just describe the two sides, uh, the government of, uh, of Yingluk Shinawatra on the one hand and these uh, opposition, the so-called Democrats on the other. What do they represent and who do they represent? Yingluk Shinawatra is the hugely popular uh, prime minister. Um, she's uh, the leader of the kind of the red shirt or what are known as the red shirts um, who back her brother Taksin Shinawatra who is in self-imposed exile in Dubai. And he's been um, convicted of uh, corruption on corruption charges. Um, she so far has, has not been convicted of any corruption charges, but there's a belief that she's going to try and get her brother back. Um, and she's very popular in the northeast of the country, and she's very popular with rural voters. 
And um, on the other hand, you have these the Democrats who in many ways are anything but Democrats because they believe um, that the country shouldn't be given to the Shinawatra family because they say they're corrupt and they buy elections and instead it should be run by, um, but basically by themselves and they represent the, the elite in Bangkok um, and, and big business in Thailand. So um, you basically got these two um, very conflicting parties. Um, on the one hand, you've got some people say they're almost fascist, um, the, the yellow shirts, and then you have the popular red shirts. And the, uh, and when the election, uh, uh, Prime Minister Yingluk, she called the uh, a snap election in an effort to kind of lance this boil. But it seems mm-hmm. to have gone rather wrong for her. It has. Um, and in many ways, it's hard to know how it could go right for her, because um, basically the yellow shirts say they're not going to respect the, the outcome of any election anyway. Um, and so there's very little she can do about it. Um, the thing is that she she is popular, but the the link to her her brother Taxon, um, who who is has been convicted of corruption, and basically they they carry out these very populist measures. So during elections, they they basically effectively buy votes. They are they're um, you know they introduce all these populist measures that the yellow shirts say you know that they can't compete with and that they're not they're not prepared to do. So even though she launched this, this snap election, as you, as you say, um, it was never going to really be a runner because the, the opposition say they weren't going to take part. Now, in some of the districts, they didn't actually uh, properly have the election at all. And as a result of that, uh, the, there's a certain minimum number of seats that have to be filled for a government to be formed. And this minimum hasn't been reached. She's now doing what? She's uh, trying to hold by-elections in all of these places. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. She's going to hold by-elections in these places. It's a question about whether she can do that fast enough um, before the the opposition um, managed to cause more damage in Bangkok to maybe, um, if they take over more government offices and make it impossible for her to introduce any um, any policy. Because at the moment, um, Parliament has been suspended. She's the caretaker leader at the moment. Um, but if they if they manage to make it impossible to hold a parliament, she won't be able to introduce any policies. And then uh, what we're facing into is is a, is a large political vacuum. Um, and the, a big factor in this is is what the army will do. Um, the army have staged eighteen coups or attempted coups over the last eighty years or so. And um, basically, it's a question of whether they intervene. Um, and another factor that has to be considered uh, in this incredibly murky affair in many ways is, is the role of the monarchy, which is popular on both sides, but tends to be more associated with the yellow shirt opposition, with the Bangkok elite, um, and whether the king intervenes. Um, the king is, is, is ill and um, is thinking about succession issues as well, so his mind is elsewhere. So um, at the moment, it's a very confused picture, and the possibility of a power vacuum emerging is, is very real. And do we know where the army stands or what uh, the, the senior army officers, where they, they stand with regard to the, uh, the division between the yellow shirts and the red shirts? Well, they've traditionally kind of backed the yellow shirts because of the political elite and because of their links to the, to the king, and they are loyal to the king. Um, in this particular conflict, in the, uh, which has been going on since November, the one we're currently dealing with, um, they've basically held back and they've sort of said um, they want to see how things take their course because they recognize that Yingluk is a popular leader. And, and the other thing is that when the, go- when the army does intervene, 
it doesn't really know what to do because it doesn't want to be the government. It, it, it wants stability, but it doesn't want to govern. So um, the army is aware that if they do intervene, they, they could just be maintaining the status quo, that um, what, what will happen is if there's another election that the red shirts would get in again. So I think the army is kind of waiting to see if, if some kind of political solution emerges. Finally, Clifford, how is all of this being viewed from outside Thailand by Thailand's neighbours and allies? Well, uh, one thing that needs to be said about Thailand is that it is a country that seems to be able to survive and even thrive with a high degree of instability. Um, we've had these conflicts nearly every two years now, going back for, for certainly a, a decade or so and, and, and longer. Um, what, um, and tourists are still going there. Um, what we're still seeing, what we're beginning to see, though, is, is that um, because this has been going on so long now that people are starting to ask questions about the long-term prospects for Thailand. And, and that's where the, the big worries lie. And I think both the red shirts and the yellow shirts are aware of this. But, um, of course, no one wants to actually intervene and, and, and come up with a solution. But we did see that China has pulled out of a deal to buy 1.2 million tons of Thai rice um, uh, as part of a corruption probe. Um, there are fewer tourists um, arriving in Thailand, and certainly they're avoiding Bangkok. Um, and Bangkok is obviously one of the great tourist draws. So um, the long-term effects are now looking a lot more serious than they have during previous conflicts. Clifford Coonan, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. For me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.